0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, James Comey's memoir of being fired by Donald Trump will have comment from the legendary Washington journalist Elizabeth Drew. Also, it's the 50th anniversary this week of the uprising by Columbia University students in 1968. Mark Rudd will talk about what happened and lessons for the left today. First up, will the Supreme Court stand up to the President? Trump Watch starts right now. Yesterday, April 25th, the Supreme Court faced its first great Trump test, the Muslim ban. The court heard oral arguments in Trump versus Hawaii, a challenge to the legality and and constitutionality of Trump's immigration order, which indefinitely bars 150 million people, a vast majority of them Muslim, from entering the United States. It's a lawsuit that epitomizes the nature of the Trump presidency. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU, which has been counsel in successful challenges to all three versions of the ban, including the one now pending before the court. We reached him today not far from my hometown of St. Paul. He's across the river in Minneapolis. David Cole, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Well, let's start with the constitutional issues in this case with the wonderful name Trump versus Hawaii.
1: Well, the basic issue is, uh, can the President of the United States uh, engage in uh, the targeting of a particular religion uh, for disfavored treatment? Uh, Under the Establishment Clause, it is uh, clear uh, in the the case law that the government must maintain neutrality uh, among religions. It can't single out particular religions to lift them up or to... Uh, to disfavor them. Uh, And the contention here that we made, and we've made successfully thus far, uh, is that President Trump promised to ban Muslims uh, as a candidate. He then told us that he would do so by using territories or nations uh, as a proxy uh, for religion. Uh, He then came into office, and within seven days of taking uh, the oath of office, put in place the first uh, Muslim ban on seven uh, predominantly Muslim countries. Uh, And he has uh, essentially uh, revised but not changed the uh, underlying purpose and effect of the ban uh, twice since, so that we're now at the third version, but it's still a Muslim ban. And that Uh, When a government official uh, promises to target Muslims uh, and then tells you how he's going to do so and then does precisely that, uh, that's a violation of the Establishment
0: Clause. So this is what uh, ordinarily people refer to as the separation of church and state. That's the problem here. Uh, We say Trump said he wants to prevent people with one particular religion from entering the country he said it, he said it literally, isn't that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, on the campaign trail, uh, and then and then as he uh, after he took office, he essentially doubled down on it, incorporated it by reference uh, in in multiple statements and tweets uh, uh, since taking taking office. Um, when he when he signed the the, fir- the first Muslim ban, he looked up and said, "We all know what this means." Uh, he went on. Christian, National Christian Broadcast Network, the day the first um, ban was put in place, uh, to explain that it was designed to favor Christians over Muslims. So he couldn't have been more explicit about his purpose.
0: Yeah, the quote that I found is uh, that he, on the campaign trail, he called for, quote, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims Entering the United States, close quote, and the reason he said we needed that was, quote, "Islam hates us." So it seems pretty clear this is about a religious group. Absolutely. Uh, of course, the government's uh, uh, defense is that really this is a national security issue, not a issue of uh, discriminating against people of a particular uh, religion. Um, the country's Whose all of whose population are banned from entering the United States are Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, and some from Venezuela. Uh, what is the evidence that the people from these countries uh, pro, uh, pose a national security threat to the United States? What's Trump's evidence?
1: Well, he hasn't put forward any uh, any real evidence uh, the, in the initial executive order, which. Targeted seven uh predominantly Muslim countries, between ninety and ninety-nine percent uh Muslim populations. He identified uh not a single person from any of these countries who had committed a terrorist offense in the United States. In the second uh version of the executive order, after the first was struck down and he put out a revised version, and that ban he uh he targeted six uh predominantly Muslim countries. In that he gave a single example. It was a man uh who had come from somalia and then had been uh arrested and convicted of providing material support to terrorism but the problem with that example was he came when he was 3 years old uh so it's not like uh, you know there was uh, some some vetting problem with him when he was 3 years old he was radicalized while here uh and engaged in in, in criminal activity so so very virtually no evidence um, uh that that these uh that individuals from these countries have posed a threat or that the ordinary methods that Congress chose to deal with um, immigration are insufficient. And that is, where there is a country uh, as to which there is evidence of uh, terrorists support state sponsors of terrorism or a country that doesn't provide us with, uh, you know, fully sufficient information about the individuals that we are vetting, uh... congress provided for a specific set of procedures a, a kind of uh, heightened vetting uh, process a, a burden on the uh the the foreign national who is seeking to come here to demonstrate uh that he is not a threat uh that he is not in, involved in any kind of terrorism and unless he can prove that he's not uh he he he's denied entry but it's on an individualized basis uh, trump threw all that out and instead imposed a nationality-based bans, initially on seven Muslim countries, then in the second version on six, and the third version on five, uh, but added North Korea and Venezuela, which are not Muslim countries, but also are countries that send virtually nobody to the United States, North Korea, almost zero people, and Venezuela. The ban is only on a certain, uh, a small number of government officials, not on all nationals of Venezuela.
0: So, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Yemen. Some people from Venezuela. Were these the countries behind the 9/11 attacks? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd check no. on that. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, absolutely not. This is a this is a Muslim ban, and and look, the, you know, I, I, as as we argued in the court, had any other government official in any other setting said the kind of things that Trump said uh in targeting a particular religion and then adopted uh, a policy that was precisely what he promised to adopt. The courts would in seconds strike it down, including the Supreme Court. Uh and the and the, the, the government's argument is, yeah, well, maybe so, but this is the President of the United States and he's, using, he's exercising his immigration and national security authority, and therefore, uh, therefore what? Therefore he should be able to discriminate against, uh, against Muslims? Uh, I, no, they've, they've never made a, 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 a cogent argument, or indeed any argument, as to why exercise of the immigration authority or the protection of our national security requires discrimination against a particular religion. Uh, there's no that they, they just haven't made that argument. And and so, you know, I, I think it should be a very strong uh, case that it's unconstitutional. And indeed, the courts have ruled in our favor on precisely those grounds uh, at, at both the district court and the federal court of appeals levels on multiple occasions. But of course, now it's up to the Supreme Court. Of
0: course, what what gov- The federal government uh, has argued, not just about this case, but for decades about all kinds of cases, is that the president has special knowledge of threats to the national security, which is secret and which uh, you and I aren't allowed to know and they're not allowed to present in court. And therefore, the court should defer to the president because he knows things that judges don't know. And uh, what do you say to that argument?
1: Well, I think it's a very, very troubling argument. Look, I, you know, obviously the president has uh, has has to have a fair amount of uh, of leeway when it comes to national security matters, but it's not blind deference. Uh, and we've, we we have one historic example of that kind of blind deference, and that is the Japanese internment, when the government uh, the, uh, under FDR interned 110,000 people. Uh, 70,000 of them U.S. citizens, simply because they were of Japanese uh, heritage or ethnicity, and argued to the courts that you should defer to us. We've determined that these people pose a threat uh, of sabotage, of espionage, but we can't identify which ones pose a threat, and so we need to lock them all up. Uh, And the court, uh, you know, much to its shame, deferred to FDR and upheld the uh, internment of the japanese uh, americans and the japanese uh, during during world war 2 but today that is seen as uh, one of the court's great mistakes and indeed karen Korematsu, the the daughter of fred Korematsu, was in the courtroom uh, uh-huh. uh yesterday morning uh to watch uh the supreme court hear yet again the 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 executive argue that the court should blindly defer to the president uh, on a case of, of, of blatant discrimination.
0: Well, in the argument uh, at the Supreme Court that conservative justices raised some arguments that I'd like to get your response to, Justice Olito said, okay, the ban blocks 150 million people, mostly Muslim, from entering the United States, but there are more than a billion other Muslims in the world who are not barred by this, so you can't call it a Muslim ban. What do you say to Justice Alito?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the laws against discrimination, uh, whether it's race discrimination or religious discrimination or gender discrimination, um, prohibit treating people based on their religious gender or race identity, period. And they don't prohibit it only if you do it to every member of that uh, race, uh, religious uh, identity or, or or gender. So, a a, a an employer uh, who refuses to hire an individual because he is black cannot defend himself by saying, "Well, I already have three black people employed, so I can't it can't possibly be discrimination for me to deny this person a job because he is black."
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, well, that convinces me uh well, you and five votes from the Supreme Court will that'll get do you there. it and uh Chief Justice Roberts asked uh, uh whether uh, Trump will forever be unable to do anything about immigration in light of his campaign statements calling for quote a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United states uh he asked uh is there a statute of limitations on that? What What would be your answer to, Chief Just, to the Chief Justice?
1: So I think there's lots of things that the President can do in the immigration area. It's not as if he is foreclosed from adopting uh, immigration policies. Uh, he has adopted many uh, immigration enforcement policies that are in, in force across this country, and this is the only one that's been targeted as discrimination on the basis of religion. Why? Because... He specifically promised to put this policy in place. He specifically said he would do it by targeting nations, uh, and then he uh, did precisely that as soon as he came into office. So it is the linkage between this particular policy choice by the president and the president's own admissions of uh, anti-religious bias that taint this particular program. They, it doesn't taint anything that the president does. It taints this particular program.
0: And in in the government briefs to the justices, uh, the administration argued that the court must not engage in, quote, judicial psychoanalysis of a drafter's heart of hearts, close quote, what do you say to the argument that we cannot know whether there's anti-Muslim bias in Trump's heart of hearts?
1: Well, the, the, the case law really responds to that. and the, And what it says is that in the Establishment Clause context, the question is not what is in a government official's heart of hearts. It's not what his subjective intention is. It's rather what would a reasonable observer conclude knowing all of the publicly available facts. So, Somebody who know who has, has you know has read uh, President Trump's promises, uh, looked at his website where he uh, uh, put those promises in writing, um, uh, read his tweets, uh, saw his retweeting of anti-Muslim uh, uh, videos. Saw his press secretary's statement that the, that they dealt with those uh, those uh, the, the threats of of Muslims uh, through this particular ban. Would that reasonable observer conclude that this um, ban is in fact a condemnation of Islam? Uh, that's the question. It's not what's actually in President Trump's heart of hearts. It is what would a reasonable, objective observer conclude, knowing all of the facts and courts engage in that enterprise all the time. When they decide, for example, whether a crash scene put up in a town uh, or a Ten Commandments put up uh, in a federal uh, or a state building is constitutional or not, they look at all the facts surrounding the history of the the display, the context of the display, things that were said uh, in public about the display, and they ask, what would the citizen who sees this Conclude, and if they would conclude that the government is playing favorites with respect to religion, then it's a problem under the Establishment Clause. We're not asking what the internal subjective, you know, heart of hearts of the government official is, but rather what do people, what do reasonable objective people conclude when they look at these facts on the surface? And I think there's only one thing that they can conclude with with facts as strong as this, and that is that this is a uh, indeed uh, targeting of Muslims because they're Muslim.
0: We've been talking here about the constitutional uh, objections, but there's also uh, a statutory one that I've been very interested in, uh, the Immigration Act of 1965, part of the Civil Rights Revolution of the 60s, specifically uh, prohibited uh... the government from denying immigration visas on the basis of nationality because from the twenties until nineteen sixty-five the united states had an immigration policy that was based on national preferences people from northern european countries were favored people from china were banned and so on and that whole practice was specifically stopped by congress in nineteen sixty-five one of one of the great achievements of sixty civil rights legislation doesn't Trump's orders explicitly violate the Immigration Act of 1965?
1: Yes, and that is uh, what the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit uh, held. Uh, that um, that this is this is he, he has essentially resurrected nationality-based discrimination in direct violation of the Immigration Act, and the the power to, to make immigration policy for the United States is a congressional power not an executive power the, the executive power is to implement congress's policies uh... not to uh... override them and and here he has uh, acted in, in contrary to the prohibition on nationality-based discrimination so yeah there is a, a, a an argument that it's unconstitutional and there's also an argument that it is in violation of the immigration act itself
0: well the headlines all said the court majority seemed ready to support Trump on the Muslim ban. Uh if that happens, what's the next move for the ACLU and the other groups that have been challenging the president on immigration?
1: Well, I think it would be extraordinarily uh disturbing if the court uh stands up uh uh or or stands with the president. Uh I think it would be in 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 a sense a a kind of uh, repetition of the mistake that was made in in Korematsu. Uh, And and I guess I I think we have to respond in the way that people responded to Korematsu, which is Korematsu was decided in, uh, I think, 1942, 44. 44. 44. 44. Right. 1944. Um, But the ACLU uh, and a number of Japanese-American groups did not accept that the Supreme Court's word was the final word, and they continued to fight over the legitimacy of the Japanese internment for the next four decades. Uh, They did it in indirect ways and tangential ways by trying to get back people's property when they were returned back to their homes, by trying to get back people's citizenship who had been compelled to give up their citizenship while interned, by engaging in Uh, Historical research into the government's arguments in the case, and demonstrating that the government had been uh, had been duplicitous with the with the with the Supreme Court by going back into court and seeking to overturn the the convictions uh, many many years after they had been uh, had been served uh, by uh, getting an independent commission, and ultimately uh, concluded this struggle for decades concluded in Congress enacting a statute. Uh, that um, that apologized to all of those who were interned and paid uh, reparations uh, to the survivors, and that I think, the, in the judgment of history, Korematsu was overturned. And I think if the Supreme Court upholds the Muslim ban, we have to hold the president and the court responsible to the judgment of history by continuing to engage in the fight uh, against this uh, against this policy.
0: In the 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 reparations for internment of japanese americans i believe that bill was signed by ronald reagan isn't, isn't that it, right
1: it wasn't it was indeed and that and that illustrates how you know if you continue to fight uh you can uh you can really turn things around uh, you know you know the other thing is i think people can can go to the polls uh there will be midterms uh there will be uh, an election in 2020 and people can uh, vote for candidates who who stand up for uh, for equality of all religions who condemn uh, the uh, the targeting of of islam or any other uh, religion for disfavor who treat uh, human beings as individuals and not as uh, simply reduced to their uh, religious convictions uh, and 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 that would uh put an end to the muslim ban in the uh in the in the in the near term uh through political and democratic means
0: so the uh the Immediate effect, if the Supreme Court were to uphold Trump's Muslim ban, would be uh, on Syrian refugees seeking to enter the United States and refugees from from uh, other places. But it also sends a much broader message, not just to Syrian refugees, but really to the whole world. Remind us what what it said, what it would say to the world if the Supreme Court uh, uphold, upheld uh, Trump's Muslim ban.
1: Well, I think it's it, you know. It, 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 what the world has seen thus far is a president who has uh, acted uh, in a a, a, a disturbing and shameful way here and elsewhere. Uh, But it's an individual. Uh, It's an individual. And what they've also seen is that many people have stood up against what President Trump did, and many courts have stood up against what President uh, Trump did. Uh, But if the Supreme Court if the justices of the Supreme Court stand behind the president, give sanction to the anti-Muslim bias that the president uh, engaged in, then they are essentially saying this is American policy. Uh, the separation of powers has, has blessed uh, this action. It's not just the action of a, of a, of a president who is, a, who is, as Justice Kagan uh, said, a little out of the box, Uh, But it is uh, the the action of the president uh, essentially permitted by the legislature and permitted by uh, the courts. And that sends a far worse message to the world, uh, a message that the United States has somehow uh, put itself up against a religion, a religion that billions of people, uh, billions of peace-loving people follow. It would be a terrible, terrible development for the United States' image around the world.
0: David Cole of the ACLU, he wrote a preview of the Supreme Court argument on Trump's Muslim ban for the New York Review. David, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: Always good to talk to you, John.
0: Bye-bye. I'm John Weiner, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, James Comey's memoir, where he explains why he made that face that fateful announcement about Hillary's email 11 days before election day that's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, it's the 50th anniversary of Columbia 1968. Mark Rudd will be here with some lessons for the left today. Now it's time to talk about James Comey's famous memoir. It's called A Higher Loyalty. For that, we turn to Elizabeth Drew. She's a longtime Washington journalist and author of the book Washington Journal, Reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's Downfall. She wrote about Hillary Clinton's campaign memoir, What Happened, for The Nation. She also writes for The New York Review, The New Republic, and other publications. Elizabeth Drew, welcome to the program.
2: I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, the heart of Comey's book is his account of the campaign and that famous announcement that he was reopening the FBI investigation of Hillary Clinton's email 11 days before Election Day. You say the book's explanation of why he did that is different from what he's been saying in the interviews for his book tour. Uh, please explain the differences.
2: Well, I what I did was not only read the book, but I watched him all week yeah. to see, uh, and I was very surprised because uh, he contradicted himself. In a number of respects, in the book, you're right. Ninety percent of that book is his life and uh, his previous cases, and then like the last ten percent are, are the campaign. So in the book, he said that the reason he had announced it uh, that he was reopening the uh, investigation was because he was so worried that he assumed Hillary would win because that's what the polls were saying, and uh, if I may interpolate as I go query whether the t- director of the FBI should be a sephologist in <laughs> the word of people who, you know, track the polls and guess elections. Anyway, he assumed she'd win, and he said that, therefore, if she won and he hadn't said that she was under investigation, her whole presidency would be uh, suspect or delegitimized. So he was only thinking of her. Then in, on the book tour, I heard him give uh, a couple of other reasons which were that he and uh, Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, had said that the case was closed, and then it wasn't. And so, you know, what was he to do? He simply had to announce it was reopened. And then the third one was that the whole Justice Department and FBI would be under suspicion if uh, they granted it to uh, Hillary, because that would put them all under suspicion. He didn't want to do that to Hillary beloved fbi and the justice department so which was it you know it was a shifting rationale my own view was you have to start earlier this started as you know john when a bunch of uh, emails was found on the laptop of anthony weiner this gets a little wild here that he was the was the husband of huma Abedin, uh... hillary's closest aide and close close friend and confidant they were married then but uh... Wiener had this unfortunate habit of sending uh, to young people pictures of his parts uh, erect. And uh, so he was being investigated. He'd been caught at it. He was being investigated, and they found all these emails. Now, my own view is that he said both that he had and that he hadn't gotten a warrant by the time that he said the case had been reopened. So whichever it was, I couldn't see why he didn't get a warrant and they couldn't. Maybe they couldn't get through all the emails, but a quick rifling through the beginning, the middle, the end would have signaled to them what it was. As these were copies of emails that had already been examined, and they could have spared themselves the whole agony and the argument over whether or not he cost Hillary the election. The difference in the three final states that made the difference: Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. The whole difference that all the with all three combined was eighty thousand votes. So a lot of factors could go into that. And my again, if if I think if Hillary had been a stronger candidate, she wouldn't have been so vulnerable to that announcement, but she wasn't a strong candidate as people thought. And so she was vulnerable to whatever happened. But he wasn't the only reason she lost.
0: A lot of people have been disturbed by the inconsistency or the unequal treatment of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump Donald Trump was also under in Donald Trump's campaign was also under investigation for right. Russian interference James Comey did not feel obligated to reveal that he has some explanations remind us what they are and what do you think of them
2: His explanation is that it really wasn't Trump yet and it wasn't the campaign. He said we were looking at a few individuals to see uh, if they were playing with Russia. So he said it was much too early to announce it. And normally, the normal practice is the Justice Department and the FBI never announce when they're investigating someone. So he went by the book. I mean, the difference is he went by the book with Trump, but with Clinton, he gotten himself into this situation but he was the one, you see, I think you have to connect it with, he was the one who announced that she had been investigated and they weren't going to bring charges. Now, normally the role of the FBI is to investigate and recommend to the uh, Justice Department whether they should prosecute or not. But it's the Justice Department that makes that decision. And Comey took it upon himself to not only investigate, but make the decision and then give the extra ex-Cathedra comments on how Hillary's pe- she and her people had been very reckless in handling the material. And that was totally out of law, and you don't do that. And so he said he had to take it from the Justice Department because Mrs. Lynch had met with members of the famous uh, meeting at the tarmac yeah. when when uh, Bill Clinton went on to her airplane, which was a foolish thing to do. Nobody knows what happened in that conversation. I seriously doubt he said, no, you're not going to prosecute my wife, are you? I really don't think he'd be that dumb. He was just probably thought he could just charm her. Yeah. In any in any event, so that was the reason. But he went way beyond the uh, the norms of the uh, way these things are handled. And normally, what would happen? So Loretta Lynch took herself out of it, and she said, "Okay, this happened, so I won't get in on the decision to prosecute." Normally, that then goes to the Deputy Attorney General. Or to the head of the criminal division, but Comey saying afterwards his rationale in the book was that any any decision by any part of the Justice Department would be would be could be tainted or considered tainted. So he was going to take care of it himself. So I think from then on he just had a you know his own view of how to handle this. Both of them were. Not right. I don't think he was being partisan. Let me just say that. I don't think he was being pro-Trump. I don't think there was anything in him to be pro-Trump. I think it was just he got it right when he handled Trump, and he didn't get it right when he handled Hillary. I don't disagree with what he did about Trump. Uh, I just think they could have handled the uh, discovery of Hillary's emails in some way that would have told them more quickly, uh, hey, these are old emails, and so there's nothing here. But he was also under a lot of internal pressure from the some agents in the in the Washington Bureau and many agents in the New York Bureau who were saying, uh, you know you've got to you've got to make a new investigation. you've got to get it out there. Or we're going to leak it." And Rudy Giuliani was saying, "Oh, you can't you know something big is coming. So how did he know it was being leaked to him? So he was kind of cornered by his own people. tummy was. That's a management problem. That's not a legal principle.
0: Yeah. And then there's the question of impeachment. Comey had some, uh, I would say, remarkable views of impeachment that, uh, that he's expressed uh, during the publicity tour for the book. You know a lot about the impeachment of Richard Nixon. It's the central event in your book, Washington Journal, reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's downfall. Remind us what Comey has said about impeaching Trump.
2: Well, he said two different things. Again, in the interview with George Stephanopoulos, which was the first one, it was that Sunday night, an hour-long interview on ABC, and he said to George, who asked if he thought Trump should be impeached, he said, no, that would be a cop-out. It's much more important that the American people take it upon themselves to vote him out of office. Well, this showed no understanding of the point of impeachment which the founders put in there, you know, the presidency is Article Two in the Constitution, and the first part of Article Two is impeachment. And then, and then they get to the powers of the presidency. They felt so strongly about it. And the point was to have recourse during a president's uh, time in office if he is breaking the law or doing, you know, terrible things so bad that it calls for an impeachment. Otherwise, there's no recourse. So he must have been told by some people that he got it wrong. Because the next time, Stephen Colbert asked him about it, and he changed it. And he said, well, the facts and the law will decide whether or not there's impeachment, but he just wants the American people to think hard about our values. That was, that's what he kept saying about the book, that that was really the point of his book. And I think the problem is, I'm sounding pretty harsh on him, and I, I'm not as harsh as many of the critics, was that he was writing a revenge book. Because he, you know, he was so stunned and shocked and angered at having his really quite long and quite honorable public career cut short by Trump because Trump was bad at him. So he was getting even, and that very problematic. The question whether he should, he's a witness in the investigation, in Robert Miller's investigation. So, should a witness be writing a book? And, you know, people will resent him for making money off of stuff that he owed the system, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he just. I think Comey is actually an honor, basically an honorable man who played the angles a bit too much, and he was just kept getting it wrong. I think it was a bit of a tin ear, too, with him.
0: You said you called this, the idea of writing a revenge book was improper because Comey is at least potentially a witness. Uh, in Robert Mueller's case, exactly what kind of witness is he and what is the crime that he may have witnessed?
2: Well, I said it was. Yeah, they were problematic. Revenge books are problematic. I didn't say they, there are those who think it was improper. I didn't get to that point, but I, I understand that argument that he just should have waited. But uh, you know, and it certainly looks like it. Who should, I what I stayed away from was his, me- you know, mental mot- motives. We can't know, you know, what he was really thinking. But it certainly, to many people, will look like well, he was just trying to cash in on this, or he wanted to get even with the president. He would be a witness because one of the uh, major charges, if there are going to be any, or maybe the major charge, if they don't find collusion, which I think they will because I think it's there, but anyway, was that a charge that Mueller is very likely to bring, it appears, is obstruction of justice. And a major factor in that was the firing of Kobe. So he is a witness in that, and he is a witness in this series of events that he put in his memos of the president doing various things that were trying to block the investigation or block parts of it, telling his you know Trump telling Comey to uh, please let it go with Flynn and a couple of times, and so uh, the things he wrote in his memos is really part of part of the uh, part of the inquiry into whether tr- Trump should be called for obstructing justice. Now, uh, stay with me. An impeachable offense is not the same thing as a crime. Something can not be a crime, but be an impeachable offense. For instance, Nixon was uh, cited for obstruction of justice. But you don't have to prove intent in an impeachable offense. For a crime, you have to prove intent. And all that all that uh, Mueller can do is look for crimes. That's his, uh, that's his assignment. But you could separate if if Congress were of a mind to impeach Trump, which they are not, and I don't know whether they ever will be. Uh, it depends on the Republicans. Then you wouldn't have to prove intent. But in any event, Kobe's, uh the way Comey was approached by the president. You know, a couple of times to leave uh, leave Flynn out of this, and then being fired. And as you remember, the president said to Lester Holt on television. It, the Russia thing was on his mind when he fired Comey. Yeah. So it's pretty clear to me that there's that there's a obstruction. They're both criminal and uh, impeachable.
0: Elizabeth Drew. She wrote about Comey's book for The New Republic, and I wrote about it for The Nation. Her highly relevant book is Washington Journal, reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's downfall. Thank you, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you. It was fun.
0: I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Mark Rudd on the 50th anniversary of Columbia 68. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. (laughs) It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and streaming at kpfk.org. This week is the 50th anniversary of the uprising at Columbia University in 1968. For comment on what happened and about lessons for the left today, we turn to Mark Rudd. Maybe you remember him. I certainly do. He was chairman of the Columbia Chapter of Students for a Democratic Society in the spring of 68, After that uprising, he was kicked out of Colombia, and then he was drafted, and then he announced he wanted to go into the army to organize soldiers against the war. That got him a deferment on the grounds of mental illness. Then he became a full-time organizer for SDS. He helped form the Weather Underground. He was a federal fugitive for seven and a half years. He surrendered in 1977. Then he moved to Albuquerque, where he became a basic skills instructor at the local community college, teaching fractions and algebra for 30 years. And he's been writing and speaking about and working on organizing peace and social justice movements for a long time. Mark Rudd, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, John, and, and I really appreciate your inviting me on.
0: Well, Columbia in 1968, and then at hundreds of other places, students worked to build a movement to stop the war in Vietnam and to fight racism in America. You've been writing about this recently and about specifically what is, what is, a, what is a movement? What does it mean to have a movement? What does movement mean? I've thought about that question for a
3: long time, you know. Um, 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 At first I thought, well, it must be some kind of amorphous or ambiguous definition of anything. And then it suddenly occurred to me, after decades of of thinking about it, um, it's a movement of history. It's, It's when a lot of people, millions of people get involved. And history changes; it moves, and 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 um, I—that's I, the best definition I've come up with.
0: So it's the it's the ultimate democratic concept. Yeah,
3: I, I did write that <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that's right.
0: So so how <laughs> how did you build a successful movement at Columbia?
3: Well, there was a, a, a great question because that's that, I've been. I've been trying to um, analyze that for years in order to express it to people. Um, first of all, there was the larger movement, the, the anti-war movement in general, of which we were a part. And, 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 and it, we can't possibly downplay the, the importance of that. Um, but on the other hand, we have similar situations right now uh, with, for example, the movement to stop global warming or the movement to end mass incarceration. So there, there, there are these larger contexts. But at Columbia specifically, we strategized. Uh, 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 kids sat down and said, How do we grow in power? How do we get more people involved? And how do we, we add to this movement, the larger movement? But that was always our goal. Um, myself, I had no experience organizing. I, I came from a, a more or less apolitical family um, in, in the suburbs of New Jersey. But what I found at Columbia when I got there in, in September of 65 was a whole bunch of red diaper babies. I mean, you may be old enough, John, to, to remember the, uh, the meaning of the word red diaper.
0: Baby. I, I am indeed in
3: fact, you are you a red diaper
0: baby? No, I am not, but I'm just a couple of years older than you, and some of my best friends were red diaper babies.
3: <laughs> the significance of red diaper babies is that they grew up in families um, that were organized, yeah. communists, socialists. Uh, I include labor as red diaper, but I've. I've I've often heard um, talk of pink diaper if you if you weren't really a communist you know yeah. but I, I include them all as as red diaper babies but the main thing is this they had experienced the organizing tradition that built the labor and civil rights movement. yeah that tradition is, is, is a is is a pretty straightforward tradition in in building our numbers and our leadership. The way to do it uh, involves uh, a a number of things, building relationships with people, uh, uh, learning to trust each other, uh, sitting down and strategizing together on on how to grow the movement, um, creating coalitions between different kinds of people. Because, uh, no, no one group can can, can accomplish uh, major social change, can't happen. So these are all elements in strategic organizing. We learned them from the um, Red Desert Babies. They had a kind of a mantra that they repeated, build the base.
0: Build, build, the, build the base. The base. Build, build the base. And what does it, it mean to build the base?
3: People. More people it depends on what you want to do. If the goal is is to show uh, opposition to a war, you need many more people involved. Um, if the goal is to elect uh, progressive candidates, you need a lot of progressive voters that 's the base and and um, in fact, uh, it's interesting here in, in uh, New Mexico um, post Trump um, we've had hundreds of people. Flocking into the Democratic Party um, in uh, at, at the uh, precinct and ward level, the bottom levels, but they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, a small group led by young people um, uh, got together and said, uh, "Let's figure out how to build the voter base. We'll use community organizing techniques, and um, they came up with a, 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 a teach." A curriculum, basically, they teach uh, precinct and ward chairs how to build the base at the precinct level. It's called Precinct 101. Uh, it involves how do you approach people, what do you ask them to do, um, how do you run a coffee uh, uh, for your neighbors. You know, what's, uh, it, it, it's interesting uh, that, that, that people are so um, unused to approaching other people. Uh, that that they need some instruction and some help. At Columbia, we spent a lot of time knocking on dorm doors. In fact, that's how I was recruited, when David Gilbert uh, knocked on my door. Hmm.
0: Well, of course, the the problem that we faced in the anti-war movement, and that is growing today, is that people get discouraged. We said... Look, we've been organizing for a year, two years, three years, and the war is still going on. We know we're right about the war. We, we have big demonstrations, but they're not stopping the war, and therefore we have to intensify. We have to do more. We have to be more militant. This is what a lot of us said in the late 60s. We have to move from protest to resistance. Uh, And for you and your friends, that meant something very specific, going underground, uh, abandoning the uh, organization of SDS, and uh, turning to symbolic bombing of government buildings. Uh, How do you forestall this sense of futility and lack of success in view of the the durability of the status quo and the things we're fighting against?
3: <laughs> um, Fifty years ago, the, the the dominant mythologies on the left had a lot to do with um, armed struggle and by any and black power by any means necessary and slogans like this. Um, it was an era of, of, of decolonization and 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 many of us. Thought that the only possible way uh, was was through through um, violence or armed struggle. Um, it it, uh, it was very current in the world, yeah. and, and, and we had grown up with literature like Franz Fanon and Régis Debray and 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 and, and you know theories that, that kind of justified uh, the, the logic of armed struggle. Fifty years later, and we know a lot more now. Um, we know we know that, uh, uh, for example, that um, nonviolent struggles around the world uh, have twice as much success uh, uh, as as violent struggles. Uh, this is the result of of a quantitative study of three hundred and fifty or more uh, struggles carried on by. Um, uh, a young professor of political science uh, in, in uh, Denver, uh, Erica Chenoweth, and her partner, I, I, I don't have her name at the, at the moment, but uh, they produced a report called uh, Why uh, um, Civil Resistance Works. And um, uh, the, the fact is that, that um, uh, nonviolent struggles work, and uh, they have, uh, as I said, twice as much chance of success um now nobody uh, and just looking at our society um the goal is a mass movement small groups can't change anything it's impossible um the mass movement uh, can win goals it has historically but we need an even bigger mass movement to gain power so um of what i advocate Is um, building the mass movement, multiple mass movements now, uh, involving more and more people, and and um, and also uh, um, uh, transforming the Democratic Party uh, into a party of the people, uh, in in order for us to gain actual power. Now, uh, there's another way to look at it, which is this: Um, in violence. Justifies the government's violence. Also, we're we're at a kind of a hair t- trigger um, um, a moment uh, in terms of violence with the with the right wing. They are very well armed, uh, and um, any escalation on our part, or even a response to their to their uh, violence, uh, is going to justify. Um, a lot of, of gunplay, and, 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 and we are not ready for that, and I don't think we ever will be. Um, I think we need to study nonviolent struggles of the tw- late 20th and early 21st century and, and, and find out um, exactly how to um, st- strategize and what tactics work. Um, the work so, of Gene Sharp mm-hmm. has been particularly important in, in this respect.
0: So we've only got, I don't know, three, three or four minutes left here. Who do you think is doing a good job on the left now of building the base? If look at the protests, there's a big movement around gun control, another one around mass incarceration and racist policing, around climate change. What are the best examples that you can point to?
3: Well, the, um, um, uh, the high school kids um, uh, have said never again. Um, um, really blew me away. Yeah, uh, when I realized that that not only were they engaging in protests, but they kept talking about the ballot box. I mean, for decades, leftists stayed away from politics, but these kids are jumping right in, and 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 so they're do, they're doing both. They're building a mass movement, uh, which is a momentum-driven movement, but they they seem to be. Uh, talking about power through um, 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 elections, through taking over. I mean, that's an incredible perspective. It's, I think it's it, it, it's one of the most advanced perspectives around. They're not, they don't seem to be hampered by the same uh, ideological uh, filters and blinders that we have.
0: And of course, if you're 16 years old now, you can't vote now, but you can vote in uh, two years. There'll be a presidential election, I believe.
3: And you've got families that vote, and you can see. The main thing is the realism and the practicality of it. They see that voting matters. They see that a small uh, minority took over the the Republican Party, and now they're in power. So why can't we, uh, uh, who represent uh, at least 60 uh, or more percentage of the population, organize ourselves, to take over the Democratic Party and, and, and uh, put uh, social democratic uh, solutions into effect.
0: So, last question, is there an alternative to strategic organizing and base building? I don't believe so. Not if
3: you realize that the only way um, uh, uh, to, to gain power is through mass movements and, uh, uh, and, 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 and structured parties. Um, no, there's no alternative. That's it. We we have no choice. Um, I would like to see many more people studying successful mass movements uh, of, of the uh, 19th, 20th, and 21st century and figuring out how they work and then applying that. Um, the biggest obstacle, I think, to that right now is that nobody reads.
0: Oh, dear. Well, I'm sorry we're out of time. Mark Rudd wrote about what happened at Columbia University 50 years ago this week for the New York Times op-ed page. He's author of the book Underground, My Life with SDS and the Weathermen. I recommend it. And he has a terrific essay in the new book, A Time to Stir, Columbia 68. It's edited by Paul Cronin. Mark, thanks for all your work since April 1968. It's been great having you on the show.
3: John, equally. Thank you very much.
0: Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, David Cole of the ACLU talked about Trump's Muslim travel ban, which was argued at the Supreme Court yesterday. You can read David's preview of the arguments at the New York Review Daily online. We also spoke with Elizabeth Drew, the legendary Washington journalist. She commented on James Comey memoir. Her review of that book is in The New Republic. Thanks also to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. We had additional production help today from Lyra Smith. And thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.